The following audio is from Heritage Christian Fellowship. More information about Heritage Christian Fellowship is available at heritagefellowship.net. Morning, church. How y'all doing this morning? Hey, grab your Bibles if you would. Turn to Luke chapter 8. If you don't have a Bible, just wave a hand around in the air. We'll make sure that you get one so you can track along with us. We've got a really amazing, just a powerful story of Scripture to be able to look at together today. So um, Luke chapter 8 is where we're going to be. While you're doing that, I have a couple of announcements. Easter service is coming up. Can't believe it, but we're like two weeks away from Easter now. And um, we need a lot of help to pull off the service um, so if you guys would, um, there's, there's sign-up sheets out there in the hallway now for different areas that we're really desperate for help in. It's a great opportunity for us to, to just be really hospitable and welcoming and show the love of Christ to people that, um, that may not come to church at other times. We get a great opportunity to serve others and um, really want you to join in with us in that. Um, but there's an out if you don't want to serve. Um, if you're a heritage person, service is mandatory, but... We'll do this. You have a little out. Um, we also, we want you to bring people to hear the gospel of Jesus Christ. And, and I understand it would be weird for you to bring someone to church and be like, I'm so glad you came to church with me. Now I got to go mess with the kids and you're in here by yourself. And then you leave and that'd be kind of lame. So if you bring someone, you don't have to help. How about that? Deal? All right. So that would be great. Um, also, um, we have an announcement coming up. Um, TAG, Theology for the Average Guy, starts April 3rd. This is a new thing on Tuesday mornings from 6 to 8 o'clock. Um, Jason Licato's organizing this, and teaching involved in this would be uh, our own Jeremy Neff, as well as Mike Robinson, the president of Pacific Bible College here in town. And they're just a really cool opportunity for the men to just um, gather together in the mornings and really dig and study and, and kind of go a little deeper, dig a little more. Um, it's The cost is $50 per person, but that covers all your books and materials for the class as well. There's only 15 spots available for this and they're only opening it up right now for us. If Heritage fills it up, then awesome. That's great. If not, then it'll get opened up to other people. So I encourage you guys to take advantage of that. It's only April 3rd until May 15th. So it's not a really long-term class, but make sure you get involved in that. Um, first come, first serve, and you can get information at the Connect desk. Um, Jeremy's in the back corner over there. Uh, Mike Robinson was here at first service, I think, so he's gone now. But anyway, just if you need some help, just stop by the Connect desk and we'll help you get plugged in there. Amen? Now, Luke chapter 8, we got a lot to cover today. Would you grab your Bibles, and in honor of the word of the Lord, will you stand with me as we read our text for the day? <clears throat> And we're going to be starting today in verse 40. Luke chapter 8, verse 40 says this. The word of the Lord says. Now when Jesus returned, the crowd welcomed him, for they were all waiting for him. And there came a man named Jairus, who was a ruler of the synagogue. And falling at Jesus' feet, he implored him to come to his house. For he had an only daughter about 12 years of age, and she was dying. As Jesus went, the people pressed around him, and there was a woman who had a discharge of blood for 12 years, and though she had spent all of her living on physicians, she could not be healed by anyone. She came up behind him and touched the fringe of his garment, and immediately her discharge of blood ceased. And Jesus said, Who was it that touched me? When all denied it, Peter said, Master, the crowds surround you and are pressing in on you. But Jesus said, Someone touched me, for I perceive that power has gone out from me. And when the woman saw that she was not hidden, she came trembling. And falling down before him, she declared in the presence of all people why she had touched him and how she had immediately healed. And he said to her, Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace. While she was still speaking, someone from the ruler's house came and said, Your daughter is dead. Do not trouble the teacher anymore. But Jesus, on hearing this, answered him, Do not fear. Only believe. She will be well. And when he came to the house, he allowed no one to enter with him except Peter and John and James and the father and mother of the child. And all were weeping and mourning for her. But he said, Do not weep. For she is not dead, but sleeping. And they laughed at him, knowing that she was dead. But taking her by the hand, he called, saying, Child, 
arise. And her spirit returned, and she got up at once. And he directed that something should be given her to eat. And her parents were amazed, but he charged them to tell no one what had happened. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. You guys can have a seat. We have a lot of territory to cover today. Um, powerful, powerful story going on here. Um, this series that we've been kind of looking at, we're working through the book of Acts, or excuse me, the book of Luke, written by Luke, who wrote both Luke and Acts. Luke is a, a physician, he's a doctor, and also a really good historian. And he writes these things that we might believe and know with certainty who Jesus Christ is. And really, the last few chapters, are, are Luke's doing something specific. He's a really good writer. He writes with a lot of purpose and a lot of intent. And as he's doing this section, he's building up to a crescendo that's going to take place as we get into chapter 9. Um, it's this issue of who is Jesus. If you guys remember, in Luke chapter 7, John the Baptist is in prison. He doesn't know what's going on. He's struggling with the fact that he's in prison. And he sends word by his disciples to Jesus. And what is the question that's being asked of Jesus in that setting? Who are you? Are you the one that we were expecting? Are you the Messiah we thought was coming? Or should we just wait for another? That's, that's the question that was given. Then we get into chapter 8. Remember this story? where the, the stormy seas are calmed and the disciples are in the boat. And when they see Jesus just speaks out at this storm and says, stop, and the, the water goes flat and the wind stops, what is it that the disciples say as they're looking at Jesus? Who is this man? And it's going to come to a crescendo as we get into chapter 9 because then Luke's going to turn to Peter. And he's going to say, Peter, who am I? You've been with me. You've seen these things. You hear what everybody else says. Who do you say that I am. And so even as we're going through these stories, Luke is presenting these things for the purpose of us understanding the reality of who Jesus Christ really is. Fear snuffing out faith or making faith impossible to practice out or causing people to back away and not have faith. Or faith, being able to, to trump fears in such a sense, in, in lifting over fears, you might say. And we're going to see this take place here. We've seen it along the way. Again, the disciples are in the boat. Remember, Jesus calls out, stop. Water goes flat. Wind stop. Says the disciples were filled with fear when they saw this. Jesus goes across the lake. He heals the man who was possessed by demons. He kicks the demons out. And remember, all the people of the city come out to hear what's going on, to see what's actually happened in this place. And it's told them, man, this is what happened. This is what Jesus did. And look, here's the guy. He's in his right mind. He's okay. And this is that the people were afraid when they saw what happens. And we're going to see this take place here. And if you think back, even into, speaking of, the sections that we've been in, you guys remember the parable of the sower? Remember Jesus talks about how this guy's throwing seed into these different places, and, and it grows here but doesn't grow here, and he talks about what that actually represents in the story? One of the places he mentioned in there is he said that seed was thrown into a place that was really thorny ground. Remember that? And that the thorns, the weeds in that place kind of choked the seed out and so it wasn't able to produce fruit. And he told the disciples that that is when the word of the Lord comes to a place that it, it's going to build faith. It looks like it's going to accomplish something, but then the cares and worries of the world do what? They just sort of choke it out and that faith never really takes hold. Well, this is kind of what we're going to see here, and I think it's maybe even intentional, because when Luke talks about these crowds that are pressing on Jesus, that word pressing literally means to choke, to actually to make it as if you can't breathe. So in these situations, when fears and worries and anxieties and cares of the world are all coming and surrounding these people, what will happen? Will they have faith? Will they be able to stand firm and keep faith in Jesus and know who he is? Or will fear snuff out their belief and prevent any possibility for victory or for healing in this? This is what's going to happen in this story. But it starts with what I'd like to, to look at really briefly, just maybe as a quick word for us here at Heritage, especially those of you that the Heritage family who gathers with us regularly. Verse 40 says this, now, when Jesus returned, the crowd welcomed him, for they were all waiting on him. 
Now you guys know, if you've been with us, kind of the backstory to this. Jesus is in the area of Galilee. It's an agrarian area. It's farmers and fishing villages. It's not cities, small little communities, a big village on this, on this particular lake or the Sea of Galilee, as they call it, is maybe 100 people. And yet, word's getting out of all these things that Jesus has been doing. He's been healing, he's casting out demons, all this stuff's going on. And so people are coming to see and to hear what's going on themselves. And crowds are gathering by the thousands. Like, that's a huge deal. People are coming from everywhere to this little area to gather by the thousands. Eventually, there's this thing that's going to take place coming up real soon, the feeding of the 5,000. That's going to happen in the same area. And many people believe that when they counted those people, they were only counting the men because that's kind of what they would do in that day. So it could actually be as many as 15,000 people that are gathered together. Crowds are gathering everywhere. And they are, as the text says, they're pressing on him. And so remember the story. Jesus is there. They're doing all these things. Crowds are getting so thick. At one point, he goes to his home and the crowds follow him and press into to where he can't even eat dinner. And so he gets with the disciples in the boat and he's exhausted. He's like, guys, we're going across the lake. And so the guys get in the boat and they start rowing and they're making their way across the lake. And he's so tired, he even falls asleep, even in the middle of that storm that we talked about. But then last week we looked, he gets across the lake. He meets this man consumed by demons. He casts out the demons and there's all the drama that kind of goes with that. And when the people of the city see what happens, they're like, we don't want this guy here. They're filled with fear. They want nothing to do with Jesus. And they, they're like, nope, get out of here. Your little rest retreat rowing all the way across this big, massive lake. And you're going to, nope, out, go. And so Jesus, he sends a missionary into the people. And then he gets into the boat and they row back across. Now, imagine you're the disciples. You just rode all the way across this lake, part of it through a storm, finally a break. Oh no, here comes a crazy guy. Jesus heals him. Okay, that's over. We can rest. What? We have to, what? Go? We're kicked out? All right, boys, back in the boat. We're rowing back across. So now here they go again. Now they're rowing all the way back. And just imagine as they're crossing the lake, they get to that point where they can just start to make things out on the shore. And they're like, are you kidding me? And here's all the people waiting. Is that them? Is that it? Here he comes. Guys, here he comes. Here he comes. And all these people are like waiting for him. There's a word for us in that church on two levels, really. I mean, first of all, this is what we're supposed to be doing, correct? Like to know that Jesus is coming, that, that we are suffering with afflictions. We have difficulties. We still wrestle with sin and we wrestle with death and we wrestle with illness and all these things. But we know who our king is. We know that he's going to overturn the effects of all of this stuff. We know that even the wind obeys him. And we know that the scriptures say he's coming again. And so just like those people who have come from all over to gather together on the shores of that lake, we too gather together to remind ourselves Jesus is coming, and we should live with that same expectation, waiting on the day that he returns. It's easy to forget, but it's totally true, right, church? He's coming. But I think there's something for us to remember here a little more, you know, should the Lord tarry, a little more immediately as well. And that's just the idea that there's a waiting and an expectation to be with and to encounter Jesus, that's taking place here. Take a look at this quote Charles Spurgeon actually said when he was preaching on this text one time. He said this, I think that it is a very beautiful sight first to see a waiting assembly when all the people have come together not to hear fine music or merely to listen to the voice of a man but anxious to meet with God and desirous to feel the power of Jesus Christ. And that, was so, that ministered to me this week as I was studying this stuff. Church, you know, why, think about this. Like, why did you come here today? Like your motives. What did, what did you expect would happen today? If your expectation was simply, well, I'll sit among people I know. I'll hear some good music or some bad music. <laughs> I'll hear a guy talk or badly talk. Whatever the case may be, that's what I'm going to do. And then we'll go about our day. We'll watch some basketball. We'll do whatever today. But that's what I'm going to do. We're going to church because that's what we do. If that was your expectation today, I guess the good news is, is that you heard good music. It's still to be determined what you think of the guy talking. 
but you'll get exactly what you asked for. You'll get exactly what you expected. You came together. You're going to get together with the people. You're going to see some people. You're going to hear some stuff. You might even nod and agree. You may even amen here and there. Who knows? And then you're going to leave and you'll just go about your day. And by midweek at most, you won't remember anything I've said. You won't remember any of your experience here. It won't come into your radar or your collective thought. It won't affect you in the slightest. The honest truth is, as rough as it may say, before long, it won't matter that you came here today. It won't matter. But what if your expectation was that I'm going to encounter Christ today? I'm going to be gathered with God's people in God's place. I'm going to read and study and hear God's word, not just the words of a man. I'm going to pray and have expectation that God's spirit is going to speak through that donkey of a guy on stage. I'm going to worship that God as we gather together in song. What if we had that expectation that there was something much more significant and much more even supernatural that takes place when the people of Christ join together? Because that's what it is. And the good news is, as Jesus said, that when we seek him like that, we'll find him. He'll be here. He is here. And it encounters with Jesus last. Amen? Jesus changes things. Just listening to people and hearing some music. I mean, those guys are awesome. They're incredibly musicians. But as good as they are, there's better bands. There's definitely better speakers. But there's no better Savior. So can we just take an opportunity maybe right now to reorient our heart before we even dive into the meat of this sermon? And to just pray with expectation that maybe the Spirit of God actually wants to speak to you this morning. And to ask that he would prepare your heart even in this very moment. That God, that Jesus would speak to you. And you would encounter his beauty, his love, his might. And I'm telling you, this text right here is rich with it. I think if you came here to encounter Jesus, you can leave here blessed. So will you bow your heads? And just go to the Lord in prayer on your own and just ask that God would prepare your heart to meet him today. Father, I know for myself it's so easy to make a routine even out of church. But this morning by your spirit, we've been reminded that this is significant. That here we are gathering with your people in your place, with your spirit, your word, your voice will speak. And we thank you, Lord, for your promise that if we seek you, we'll find you. So I pray, God, not just that you would speak or that your spirit would minister this morning, but that we would have ears to hear it. That you would change us. That you would awaken affections for you. That you might restore to your church our sense of awe. That it is an incredible miracle to be able to gather in your presence and to hear your word and to have your spirit move in such a way. Father, please prepare our hearts and give us sight for what's really happening. And as I always pray, Lord, but I pray, Lord, that it would be sincere and earnest, Lord. May the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts be acceptable in your sight. Oh, my rock, my king, my redeemer. In Jesus' name, and all God's people said, amen. Amen. Well, now the story. All the crowds are here. They're pressing in. Verse 41, and there came a man named Jairus, who was ruler of the synagogue. And after falling at Jesus' feet, he implored him to come to his house. For he had an only daughter, about 12 years of age, and she was dying. I think we're supposed to feel that. I mean, Luke's a physician, and in many places he's detail-oriented. But right here, I think he tells us all we need to know to understand what's going on. He says, it was his only daughter, she's about 12 years old. She's dying. I, 
I don't know about you guys. How many, I'm just curious, how many men here, if you would, in particular, if you have a daughter or if you've raised daughters, will you raise your hand if you're raising girls? There is, isn't there a gift in that? Like, I remember when I was young, girl, I, uh, <clears throat> I don't know why I said young, I was stupid. <laughs> young girl. I, I remember though that like, I always like thought I wanted boys. I want boys to watch basketball with and fish with and do all that kind of stuff. And I mean, I, I used to be a boy, so I thought I'd understand a little bit about, you know, how to deal with boys. Girls, I don't know how to deal with. And, and the Lord saw fit, um, before we got Bentley, the, the Lord saw fit to just give us two girls. And um, it's, it's, it's literally been one of the greatest joys in my life so far. And I doubt, I can't imagine too many things that are going to surpass that moving forward. It's a gift. Like there is a specific and unique treasure that is a part of raising girls. I'm not trying to say it's better than boys. It's different. But there's something about the opportunity that we as dads are given to be able to shepherd and care for and nurture and love and protect our daughters that is different than the way that we tend to raise our boys, right? I, uh, um, I had this opportunity not that long ago, me and um, one of our elders here and uh, Dave Enright and then also Andrew who uh, went with us to Africa, did all the awesome photos that you guys saw when we did the Africa thing. Um, we were over at this local pub one time, like, like it was in the summertime, they have this really awesome backyard and, and you could take your dogs there, so I'm in. So we went there and, and we're playing cornhole. You guys know cornhole, the little thing, you throw it in the hole, right? Um, so we're out there and we're playing that, but it's, it's really a four-person game and we only had three people. So we're trying to figure out a way to turn it into a three-person game and it's not going real well. And this guy kind of comes out of nowhere that we didn't know and he's there with the group and he was there with his dogs too out in the backyard and he comes over and he's like, hey, do you guys need a fourth person? We're like, yeah, that'd be great, man, join us. So we're sitting there playing the game and you know how it goes, the conversations as you're getting to know each other and we're all new people, always eventually come around to those normal topics, Right. Uh, where you're from, what do you do for a living is always high on the list. So they're going around the room and, oh, I work for statewide construction. Oh, I work in finance. And the new guy, so to speak here, is there and it's like, hey, what do you do? He's like, I'm a security guard for, guard for pot farms. He's like, so I, I protect marijuana fields and I protect like the money as it gets transferred from the pot farms to the places. And I just like, that's all what I do. And I know which question's coming to me next. And I'm like, this will be interesting. And he's just, cussing and you know all this stuff what do you do I'm a pastor and he's like get the bleep out of here <laughs> and all the guys with me they're like no no really he's our pastor he's a real pastor and then the dude it's the natural thing and he's like oh, oh I'm, I'm, I'm sorry I'm sorry and now he's all trying to like apologize for us I'm just like dude just be you be you so we're just hanging out and just getting to know this guy that we'd never met before and then he starts opening up. We get this awesome opportunity. That's why you got to build relationships with people outside the church. You get these opportunities you would never get otherwise, or at least I wouldn't. And he starts talking about, he's like, man, I'm just stressing out. I'm stressing out over what? He's like, well, my wife's pregnant, and in about three months, we're going to have a little girl. And I just, I don't know what to do, man. I'm just overwhelmed at trying to figure out what am I going to do? How am I going to raise a girl? And we got this cool opportunity to minister to this guy and talk about, you know, um, Dave has daughters. We were able to talk about raising daughters and all this. And I told him, the thing I told him, and I think many of you guys, if you don't resonate with it, then you need to understand this. Um, is that, dude, listen, I told him, if you're not a snuggly guy, and he didn't look like a snuggly guy, but I'm like, if you're not a snuggly guy, you better become one. Like if you're not a hugger, a kisser, a snuggle with your kids kind of dude, or if you never had that before, you need to learn to do that because it's a huge deal, especially with girls. Boys need that too. Girls really need that. And, and we talked about, even in my pastoral experience and, and Dave as an elder and other examples that we all knew of in our own lives where so many young gals that ended up in really difficult train wreck situations, it all went back to the fact, at least to some degree, that they never had that love of a father early on and they had spent years and years and years trying to fill that hole, trying to find a way to experience the love that was designed to come from a father and that they didn't have. And I was like, dude, do not let your daughter be one of those. It was just this great opportunity to talk. 
It's a big deal. Men, we have a huge responsibility. Boys, too, I'm not elevating one over the other or any of that other kind of thing. I'm just saying there's something unique and special but also precious and also heavy responsibility-wise with raising daughters. Amen, men? There is. It's true. And when I read this story, man, just thinking about this, I can't even imagine. We'll see how this sermon goes. Last sermon, it was like teary-eyed the whole time just telling the stories. Because I'm one of those guys, I put myself in this situation. And so I'm thinking about this. He says, he has this only daughter, and she's about 12. I have two daughters, they're both about 12. One's 13, one's 11. And when I even just think of one of my daughters getting hurt, it makes my stomach go, you know that feeling when you think about that and you're like, praise God, it isn't true and now I'm gonna wrap them in bubble wrap, like that kind of feeling. We're supposed to feel this. It's his only daughter. She's about 12 and she's dying. And he's desperate. Because look at this. This is a guy of influence. This is a guy of power. And this is a guy of authority. He's a ruler of the synagogue. And here he is running to Jesus and throwing himself at the feet of Jesus. You just didn't do that. I mean, Jewish men in general didn't run. That's like a sign of lack of dignity. And here's a ruler of the synagogue who, by the way, many of his cohorts want nothing to do with Jesus. But he's running to him. And he's throwing himself at the feet of Jesus. And he's imploring him. It means he's pleading and begging him to come to his house. I have a little girl. She's my only child. And she's dying. We're supposed to feel that. And verse 41 tells us, as Jesus went, the people pressed around him. And I kind of love that. Like it's almost as if there's no dialogue given between, Jesus, my daughter's dying. Let's go. So Jesus is on his way. He's going to the house. We're going to deal with this. But along the way, it says that the crowd is pressing around him. And this is the word where it says pressed there. It means literally to choke out. The people are pressing so hard around Jesus, trying to get to him, trying to get something from him, trying to get his attention, that is now this crowd has become an impediment for him getting the help that he needs to his daughter. Imagine this guy. We don't have time for this, people. Leave him alone. Your problem will be fine. He'll get to that. But my daughter is dying. We've got to go. And this crowd is like pressing and pressing around him. Can you imagine the urgency and the desperation that guy feels as he's watching all this happen? And then there's a significant interruption. Look at verse 43. And there was a woman who had a discharge of blood for 12 years. And though she had spent all her living on physicians, she could not be healed by anyone. So this woman has been hemorrhaging. This is a a female issue, if I can just use that phrase, that she's had where she's hemorrhaging, she's bleeding nonstop for 12 years. As long as Jairus' daughter has been alive, she's been bleeding. 12 years she's been dealing with this. I mean, at what point do you give up hope, right? I had a sore throat last week for five days. I thought it was never going to go away ever. This is 12 years. And the way the text is oriented, even talking about physicians, plural, all her money, all this kind of stuff, the idea is to let us know she has tried everything. She, any specialist she can afford, any doctor she can see, she has done everything within her power to try to heal this, and no one has been able to help her. And then please understand this. Like, that's bad enough, right? 12 years nonstop. But the effect of that is even much more immense than just simply an issue of bleeding. Because in the Old Covenant, under Leviticus chapter 15, a woman during that period of time, naturally within the the monthly cycle, is considered ceremonially unclean. You're not allowed to touch her, because if you do, now you're unclean. And you have to go through cleansing rituals to be declared clean again. Husbands are in no way, they're forbidden from having any sort of marital relations with her, nothing. And if you're unclean, you're excommunicated. 
So think of the effects of this. 12 straight years of this, there's no window in there for her to go get declared clean. There's no stopping in the bleeding that ever gives her the opportunity to go do any of these washing or cleansing rituals. It's non-stop. So there's no marital relationship whatsoever. She's probably either divorced if she was ever married at all or not married, period. We have no indication or we don't see anything that says anything to do that there's a, a husband in the picture. And because of this, she's excommunicated. You can't even touch. She has not had physical contact with anyone for 12 years. No one's held her hand. No one's kissed her forehead. No one's given her a hug. 12 years. And she is alone, which is the worst kind of suffering, right? I mean, suffering's bad. Suffering alone is hell. It's torment. To not have someone to look to, someone to talk to, is it not? I mean, that's one of the things I love about even this new shut-in ministry thing that Bob and Kelly and some of these are doing because there's so many people that are out there and they're just alone. And to be able to go to people and just be a presence around them, to just sit with them when they're hurting, to, to give them a hug, to do something like that is so important. But she is alone. She can't go to church. She can't worship. She can't go to synagogue. The synagogue ruler that's there at that moment has very possibly been one of the people that has made sure she doesn't even come into his synagogue. She is completely isolated and alone, and now she's broke. She spent everything she had. So what do you think the prospects are for a woman who's been declared ceremonially unclean for 12 years, she's an outcast, she can't even go to worship, and now she has no money. Her life, should this Savior not interject, is going to end really badly, and it's going to be a train of misery the entire way. She has no hope. She has no hope except Jesus. Take a look at verse 44. She came behind him and touched the fringe of his garment and immediately her discharge of blood ceased. Think about this. Anyone who comes into contact with her is unclean, right? And she's been told this for a long, long time. In fact, even in that religious environment, she's probably been told by people that the reason she's unclean is because of sin or something like that. And probably even been told, listen, God clearly wants nothing to do with you. He hasn't even given you a window where you can come in and get help. You are forever unclean. God has turned his back on you. You are not allowed here. You do not have hope. Get out. And yet... She comes in with a crowd pressing around him. That means there's going to be some contact, right? There's going to be a whole lot of unclean people, so to speak, as she comes in. But she forces her way through and she touches his garment. Some people would say that she's even crawling on her hands and knees, that maybe that hem means the very bottom of the garment. But she comes up behind him, whatever it is, and she just touches this particular garment, reaches out. It's to be honored. Now, some people would say, look, 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 look. You Christians, you're looking at this story. You've got synagogue ruler throwing himself at the feet of Jesus. You've got this woman with this issue throwing himself at the feet of Jesus, and you're upholding them as if they're like good examples. But come on, man. They're just desperate. Yes, so are we. Just not everybody realizes it. We're all desperate. We're all in need of hope. And sometimes it's the difficulties that we're going through that God uses to bring us to him. But the reason we need Jesus in the first place is because we are desperate and hopeless and in need of a savior. Amen? I love what Matt Chandler says about this. Matt Chandler has brought that up before and they'll go, oh, Christianity, it's just a crutch. And he's like, yes, because our legs are broken. It absolutely is a crutch. Praise God for the crutch. Right? desperation is necessary. We need to come to an end of ourselves to realize that we can't do these things on our own. She needs to come to a place where her money can't save her. Her religious activity can't save her. Her friends can't save her. 
Only Jesus can save her. You don't think the, the synagogue rulers tried everything else too? With all his influence, with all his power, and part of a group that kind of hates Jesus a little bit, one day will kill Jesus, and here he is throwing himself at the feet of Jesus too. Desperation's a really good, it's not weakness, it's smart, amen? To throw yourself at the feet of the Savior and say, I need your help. And so she touches him, and immediately she's clean. Now look what happens. Verse 45, and Jesus said, who was it that touched me? When all denied it, Peter said, master, the crowds surround you and are pressing in on you. Now, (laughs) Peter has the spiritual gift of taking areas of silence and inserting stupidity into them. And he is exercising his gift really well right now. (laughs) Because here's all these people. Jesus gets touched. The thing about it, something's different. Everyone's touching him. Duh, thank you, Peter. What would we ever do without you, right? Like, but everyone's touching him, but something different's happened. He feels something different because of her touch than everyone else is around him. He stops. Who touched me? And what does it say? When all denied it. Who does that include, by the way? Includes her. Remember faith versus fear. She's been outcast. She's been told God doesn't want anything to do with you. She's been told you're not allowed to touch anyone. She has now risked that to come in and have contact with a whole bunch of people who knows what kind of punishment we're talking about. By the way, don't forget, synagogue ruler who's part of his job is enforcing and teaching the law is right there with Jesus. And she's not only come in and made these people unclean by touching all of these people, but she's also sort of impeded Jesus's movement to healing the guy's daughter. Can't imagine why she'd want to be quiet. And so she's fearful, and she says nothing. Who touched me? No one denies it. And Peter's like, "Um, everyone, duh, let's go. (laughs) But verse 47, when the woman saw that she was not hidden, she came trembling and falling. I wonder what that looked like. Did she know that she wasn't hidden because Jesus locked eyes with her and she knew she wasn't getting away with this? That she knew he knew? Or was she already so overwhelmed? Because she knows that immediately she was healed. She's going to say that in just a second. Maybe she was at a point where she was like so overwhelmed with amazement and emotion that after 12 years of all of this, she's been healed, that she knows she can't hide this in that moment either. Whatever it is, she knows. And Jesus is pausing and saying, who touched me? No, no, who touched me? I felt power go out of me. Who touched me? When the woman saw that she was not hidden, she came trembling and falling before him, declared in the presence of all the people why she had touched him and how she had been immediately healed. And he said to her, daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace. So he sort of forces her to stand up. He sort of forces her to speak out, to declare what she was and what's happened now in front of everyone. And then in front of everyone, he says, daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace. That literally translates, your faith has rescued you. That's a good way to put it. Your faith has rescued you. Go in peace. And there's something else so beautiful and so powerful in what Jesus says right here. I hope you see it. I'll tell it to you in a minute. That's a teaser. But verse 49 While he was still speaking, someone from the ruler's house came and said, your daughter is dead. Do not trouble the teacher anymore. So remember the scene. There's still a 911 going on, right? And as Jesus is talking to her, someone comes up and says, hey, 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 just stop. She's dead. You don't need to bother him anymore. This progression to the house, there's no point. Don't bring Jesus to the house. It's too late opportunity for anything good to happen is already passed. She's dead. It's over. So imagine Jairus now. The news hits him, and think of the tragedy. This is is huge. Fathers, think about this. Put yourself in this place. News has just hit him that has his world spinning. He was already desperate. This is my last hope, and he can't even get that there. 
And he just watched whatever chance they had of getting there on time, whether they would have made it or not, definitely can't happen now because of what had happened with this lady. And then there's some just simple practical things that are also true. I mean, think about it. He missed the last breath of his dying daughter. His wife would have sat there alone while the daughter died. And in that moment, I have to imagine, at least when I put myself there, that there are fears and anxieties and concerns and your whole world starts to feel like it's just crumbling in. If he was so desperate that he would run and throw himself at the feet of Jesus, now when this news hits him, I gotta think he's ready to crumble. And yet Jesus grabs him and looks at him and look what it says, verse 50. Jesus on hearing this answered him, do not fear, only believe and she will be well. The word believe there means to believe on or depend on someone. So what he's saying is this. He's like, you can listen. You can listen. You can let the fear come in and quench all this stuff. We can stop the procession right now. You can listen. But don't fear. Don't let fear stop you. Believe in me. Jairus, believe in me. And so they move on. They come to the house in verse 51. When he came to the house, he allowed no one to enter with him except Peter and John and James and the father and the mother of the child. Now, Jesus only takes three men into the room with him as well as the parents. He does not let the crowds that are with him or even the rest of his own disciples come into the room. He protects sort of the dignity of this really sacred moment that's taking place. And let me just encourage you, listen, one of the things that ministering to one another and getting involved in one another's life for the gospel of Jesus Christ, one of the gifts that it will give you, that kind of lifestyle, is you will often be given opportunity to, if I can say it this way, walk on the holy ground of special, sacred ministry, like family intimate moments in people's lives. I've been in the room as people breathe their last breath and watch loved ones crying and singing to them and praying and hugging one another. And so many times I've felt like, almost like I feel guilty for experiencing and seeing this. And it feels sacred. Does that make sense? I, I've, I've been there when, when babies breathe their first and they celebrate. Well, I mean, not in the room with them except for my own. But like... Um, when the families are celebrating the joys. Um, I get to be there as a pastor right front and center and see the look in the eyes of husbands and wives, or bride and groom as they, they make vows and look at each other with their funny, silly, goo-goo eyes and all those kind of things. Like, like there's something about ministering to people and being involved in people's lives that will give you access into these special moments that are sacred in people's lives. And let me tell you, it is a gift to be able to come into those places and watch Jesus move. Even the hard stories, like death, to see the Spirit of God moving and ministering or to see God working through you in ways that even, that even surprise you. And if you just come to church to attend and then go home, and you never actually try to be a disciple of Jesus to, to actually invest yourself in the lives of other people. Let me just tell you, you are missing it. It is a treasure to see these things, as hard as some of them are, but to be able to be there for people in those moments. And when you invest yourself in people's lives, I'm telling you, when you're the one that's loving on them and praying for them and investing in them and pursuing in them and blessing them, then you're the one that when tragedy comes, they're going to reach out to. It is a gift from God to be in those places and to see how God moves and operates. And yet very, very, very few people actually get to experience it. Heritage family, don't miss that. That's why we are pushing things like community and our huddle groups or whatever community you might actually be a part of to, to intentionally invest yourselves in the lives of other people. Don't just be buddies. Minister, serve, love, make yourself available to other people. And then when you get these opportunities like this, these sacred moments, be they tragic stories or new births, 
watch, have eyes to see what the Lord is giving you this opportunity to experience. They're treasures. Savor it and learn from them. But they're all there. No one's allowed to enter. So there's five guys now that are in the room, plus this child. Verse 52. And all were weeping and mourning for her, which is uh, good for the disciples. All means all. So that means the disciples too. Like they see this situation. Here's this girl, this lifeless 12-year-old body. They see the emotion in these parents as they're watching their daughter. And they're all crying and moaning. And Jesus says this. Do not weep, for she is not dead, but sleeping. And they laughed at him, verse 53, knowing that she was dead. And so hear it again. Here's that opportunity. Is it going to be faith? Or is it going to be fear? She's sleeping. (laughs) Sleeping? What are you talking about, Jesus? She's dead. It's over. Will it be faith or will it be fear? People still laugh at the prospect of Jesus who heals and brings the dead to life. Verse 54. But taking her by the hand, he called, saying, Child, arise. And her spirit returned, and she got up at once, and he directed that something should be given her to eat. Pace adiero. <gasps> and instantly, her lungs are filled with air. The color comes back to her skin. She raises up, and there's Jesus, her Savior, holding her hand, looking at her. Everybody's got to be standing there like jaws on the floor, right? And he's like, hey, she's been asleep for a while. She's hungry. Get her some food. I think that's beautiful. Verse 56, and her parents were amazed. But he charged them to tell no one what had happened. What? Are you kidding me? Why? Tell no one? What are we telling everybody out there? She wasn't dead. I said, she's not dead. She's sleeping. Raises her from the dead. Now tell no one. Why? Why suddenly the change? What's the difference? What's the point to that? Now, some people would say, and there's probably some truth to this. Some people much smarter than me would say, well, Jesus came and his ministry is really a proclamation ministry. And the purpose of Jesus coming was to proclaim the gospel and proclaim the kingdom. Um, But the problem is, is now these crowds are growing and growing and growing and it's getting out of control. And he doesn't want this, this, these miracles and these things that are happening to kind of drown out what he's trying to proclaim. So if the crowds are already big, then they're just going to get bigger and he's trying to keep it down. And he's just telling everybody like, don't, don't tell anybody. And there's probably some truth to that, I guess, but part of it just rings weird to me. This is just me. I need to declare what I'm about to say right now. I cannot hardcore fight you with scriptural truth, but I just, I don't get it. Because think about it. He's, I mean, he just healed someone. He rose someone from the dead like chapter ago. He goes across the lake. He he casts demons out of the town demoniac that everyone would have known. It gets declared in front of the entire city. When they kick him out and he's leaving, remember the demoniac's like, I want to go with you, Jesus. I want to go with you. What does Jesus tell him? Go tell everyone. And he goes throughout the whole city proclaiming what Jesus had done for him. I mean, pretty soon, the feeding of the 5,000 is about to take place in the same area. I mean, that's going to get a little attention and not to mention big crowd. And, and not only that, in the next chapter, Jesus is going to send out his disciples to go do the same things he's been doing. They're going to cast out demons. They're going to heal the, heal the sick. If anything, his miracle ministry, if I can call it that, is about to multiply. So why is he telling them not to say anything? Especially considering on the way to the house, he forces the issue with the other woman and causes her to declare in front of everyone what had just happened. What's the difference there? Why is this miracle any different? And and I'll tell you what I think. And I, I think at least the spirit of what I'm talking about is clearly evident in the passage that's here. I think he's protecting her. 
I think he's covering this little girl. Listen, salvation and what Jesus wants to do in our lives is about much more than just forgiveness. It's about wholeness. The word is shalom. It means right relationship with God, right relationship with nature, right relationship with people. That there, it's, it's not just like peace, meaning there's no war. It means there is harmony in all of these different relationships. And so it's not just about forgiveness, even with this little girl. It's not just about a physical healing. Think about it. There are intentional parallels in the story. 12 years, 12 years. Throwing down at the feet, throwing down at the feet. The crowd pressing in, the crowd pressing in. There's intentional parallels, and this story is purposely embedded in between the way that Luke tells it. And he's telling it with a a sense of harmony that he's trying to show some equality. There's some commonalities between what's taking place here, right? And so with the other woman, she's got this issue of this this menstruation issue, this, this feminine cycle problem that she's been dealing with for 12 years. Here we have this little girl, she's 12 years. What starts to happen about 12 years, right? It's about the time that same thing's gonna happen. And in our culture, this seems shocking, but in theirs it was normal. At that same age, that's also when you are betrothed, right around that same time. Think of Mary and Joseph and how young they were at the time. And I wonder if maybe he's just protecting her. Because who wants to marry someone that's been through that? That's kind of scary. Who wants to marry a zombie? Or what if the health problem comes back? And what really happened in there? And don't forget, women with this issue of discharge that this other woman had are considered unclean. So are dead bodies, by the way. And I can't help but wonder... If the good father is looking at her and he's like, listen, tell no one, get her some food. She's hungry. He's caring for different dynamics because he wants, it's, the gospel is so much bigger than just personal salvation. He wants her to be whole. And then in places where she can't be whole, he wants to be that for her. Because again, go back to the other woman. Take a look. I told you there's something gorgeous in verse 48. Take a look at it. When she's been healed, and Jesus forces the issue, and she declares what's happened, and she declares what Jesus did. Look what Jesus says in verse 48. And he said to her, daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace. That word peace is the shalom word. Go and be whole. But notice what he called her. Did you see it? What does he call her? Come on, church, what does he call her? He doesn't call anyone else that in the scripture. I mean, Jesus personally, while he's walking the earth, he doesn't call anyone else that. Why do you think he's doing that with her right there? I think it's because she doesn't have a Jairus. She's alone. The scriptures seem to make it clear that she has exhausted all of her resources to try to help this. And then in that moment, what does he do? Your faith has made you whole. And he calls her daughter. Like he will be her father. He will be her father. He wants her. And why does he call her to declare it like that? Because listen, it's more than her just being physically healed. If the blood stops, that's fine. But the biggest problem she has, even over the blood, is the fact that she's a social outcast. And so while everyone's there, he's going to deal with it. And he has her declare that so that in front of everyone who has ostracized her for so long, he can go, you are whole. Go and be restored in front of everyone. He's fixing her problem. He wants her to be at peace with nature. He wants her body to be whole. He wants her to be at peace with God, to have harmony with him and have that relationship of faith and love. And he wants her to be at peace with the people of God that are around her. Our salvation is so much bigger than that. And church, here's what I want you to see. If Church people, if I can say that, children of God, those of you who are saved, do you see the gentle, thorough, incredible love of Jesus in these stories right here? Do you see how good he is to them? 
because these are such perfect parallels to all of our story. Because you've noticed this unclean. The demoniac over there was unclean. He was with pigs that were unclean. He was in a graveyard, which is unclean. Now he comes over here. There's this woman with blood, and she is unclean. She's now corrupted other people. That's that issue of unclean. Even dead bodies at that time were considered unclean. You know what else is called unclean in the Scriptures? Us. The Scriptures say that we are born in sin. David said, in iniquity I am conceived. And we have no hope. You can exhaust every resource you need. You can spend all the money in the world. You can do everything you can. You can work as hard as you can, but there is nothing you can do to bridge the gap between you and God. Your sin, your rebellion, your idolatry has isolated you and you are alone apart from God. And nothing you can do can bring that back. But note this. When an unclean person touches Jesus, what would that make Jesus? Unclean, ceremonially, right? When Jesus touches a dead body, what would that make Jesus? Ceremonially, unclean. That's a picture of what he did for us. Because Christ went to the cross on our behalf where all of that sin and all of that rebellion was placed on his shoulders. And the scriptures say, he who knew no sin became sin that we might be the sons of God. He became unclean so that you can be adopted into the family of God. He rose from the dead. He triumphed over sin and death once and for all. And now what does he say? Put your faith in me. Put your faith in me. Trust me. Fear not. Only believe. This is what you're to do, to put your faith in him. And then on top of that, he says, I want you to be whole. So he saves us into community. That's what the church is supposed to be. That we then have fellowship and harmony with the people of God. And we're supporting one another and praying for one another and caring for one another and, and crying for one another and crying with one another in difficult situations. He wants us to be healed with regards to our relationship with him. That that gap because of our sin has been eradicated and that now because of the righteousness of Jesus, we can come before God and we are called somehow holy. We are called clean before God. And the scriptures tell us that sometimes he may heal us now, but no matter what, he is healing things perfectly because there is that day coming that we need to be waiting for on the shores of the lake, so to speak, when our king will return and death will be eradicated for all. Peace with God, peace with nature, and peace with one another. He has saved us to this. It's much more than just mere forgiveness. Forgiveness is huge, but he saved you from sin and he saved you to this. He's so good. So why don't we trust him? When he calls us to do things, why don't we trust him? When Satan dangles things in front of us and says, you need this to be happy, why don't we trust him? When people don't know Jesus and they hear the gospel and they have the opportunity to respond, why don't they trust him? I think it's fear. I think it's fear. I can't do that. What would my life look like? Well, I, I can't be happy without that. I have to have that. What would my friends say? Will I even have any friends if I come to Jesus? What would happen here? What would happen here? What would happen here? I think it's fear, and I also think it's a failure to understand just how good and loving Jesus is, something both of these texts cover. You go, but what will I do without, what will I do? No, no, no. Jesus is not just calling you to some life of misery. He's calling you to wholeness, and he's good, and he's loving, and you can trust him. But how do I know? Because he died for you. Because he died for you. And he's calling you now. Could you guys do me a favor? I'm going to ask the guys to come back up. And we're just going to really quickly close in a moment of worship. But I want to give us an opportunity just to respond. If you're here and you have never put your faith in Jesus Christ, I implore you to use the language from this text that you would give your heart to him. That you would have faith. That you would not let fear keep you away from what God wants to draw to you. That you would understand and, and be able to, to see the desperation that you're in. That 
happiness and fulfillment can be chased in so many different places, but you just always come up short. It's because you were designed to be in relationship with God and in relationship with God's people. And he's calling you. I'm begging you, please don't let fear stop you, especially fear of man. Like, don't just sit here as we worship and go, well, I would come up and receive prayer, but then people would see me. What will my friends think? Or for some of you, maybe, I've been going to this church for a long, long time. If they saw me go up now, they might think that I'm going up to be saved and never was before, which could be true. But just fear or faith? I would echo the words of our Savior and say, fear not, only believe. And for the rest of the people in the church, those of you who already are sons and daughters of God, adopted into the family of God, if, you're, if there's stuff that you're dealing with, I mean, even just in this room, well, it's a little bit dark now, but I could see it better in the first service either, but I, I see people in our church all the time that are dealing with illnesses and disease and employment issues, family strife, and all sorts of big gnarly issues that can just make it look like our whole world is spinning out of control and make us feel hopeless. And I would say this text is here and God's spirit has spoken to you today to say, fear not, only believe, rely on him. So we're gonna have some elders come up to the front over here. I'm gonna come over here, a couple more over there and just listen, come. The scriptures say that if you're dealing with things, have the elders pray for you, come. If you don't know Jesus, come. Let us talk with you, pray with you, show you what that looks like, and join the family of God. You guys stand with me and let's pray. Father, may your spirit move even in this time. Lord, may you heal. May you heal spirits. May you heal emotion. May you heal doubt and fear. May you heal physical ailments, Lord. May your spirit move in this place this morning. I pray, God, for those that don't know you, Father, may, may Satan not be able to speak fear into their lives. Lord, don't let fear keep them from coming to you, Lord. I pray that they would come. And for those of us, Lord, who are part of your family, I pray, God, that we might worship now with even louder voice than before as we have seen in your scripture the truth of your love and how far you would go to heal and save us. Lord, may we sing with genuine emotion of the goodness of God and the mercy that you have poured out on our lives. We pray for this time, Lord, in Jesus' name. Please come.